The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five stocks trying to hold their ground after a brutal start to the year for most indexes. The Nasdaq now in correction, but futures, they are higher right now. Are rising rates to blame for the selling? Yes, but something else you have to see may also be a big reason. Jim O'Neill is here to weigh in. Coming up in D.C., President Biden warning Vladimir Putin not to invade Ukraine. What happens if he does? Would oil spike to $100 plus? Lee McCroft is here. Netflix set to roll out their results. Why Jeffrey's saying the bar could not be lower for Netflix right now. And with so much talk about oil, what about the gasoline of electric cars, lithium? Some new numbers show why that EV you want may get a lot more expensive. It's all happening on this Thursday, January 20th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and always welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us here on Worldwide Exchange. Let's jump right into these markets after another tough day on Wall Street. But things are holding steady right now. Futures, they are slightly higher across the board. NASDAQ right now looking the best of the three major averages. Their futures up just under one half of 1%. Investors likely hoping for a turnaround Thursday. The NASDAQ Composite and NASDAQ 100 both falling again on Wednesday and are now down both more than 10% from their recent highs. So at least technically speaking, they are now both in a correction, down 10% from that peak. Let's hit bonds. The 10-year yield... It's holding steady at well, up at 1.83%. It actually held that ground yesterday right around the same level. So one wonders if the gains in 10-year yields for the year may have all been done in the first two weeks. We'll ask Jim O'Neill that question in a few minutes. Now to energy. And yesterday's rare press conference from President Biden. And when asked about the price of oil, the president said, quote, we are going to try to continue to find ways to increase oil supplies, end quote. We'll see if that may impact oil prices, which are marching toward $90 a barrel. Right now, they are down fractionally, but they are still near 86 and a half bucks here, closer to 90 overseas. Around the world, a mostly higher overnight session in Asia. It had Hong Kong's market surge more than 3%. It was on the back of China's central bank cutting its key benchmark lending rates. So we're talking about raising rates here, China cutting rates. And Europe, just getting its trading day begun with all the major averages there lower across the board. A big focus there on Germany. Producer prices, i.e. inflation, rising at its fastest annual pace ever in Germany. And the Russia-Ukraine standoff looming large, of course, over that entire continent right now. And that Russia-Ukraine issue was a major topic of President Biden's press conference on Wednesday. Speaking for nearly two hours, Biden hit on many things. And when asked, the president saying he did not overpromise on what he could get done in office. 
All this while he tries to get a grip on inflation, dealing with Vladimir Putin and Russia, and keeping hopes of his social spending bill alive. NBC News' Bree Jackson has more from Washington. Good morning, Brian. Well, it was a a fairly long press conference that President Biden held, nearly two hours, and he answered an array of questions. But the president offered or seemingly offered a self-assessment of his first year in office, acknowledging missteps when it comes to COVID-19, but also promising to do things differently in year two. The president touted accomplishments such as the bipartisan infrastructure law, the nearly 200 million Americans vaccinated under his administration, as well as strong job growth. Uh, But the president also acknowledged setbacks, including that failed voting rights legislation push. Uh, That's something that the administration says it will continue to fight for. Now, moving forward, President Biden says that he hopes to pass chunks of his Build Back uh, Better legislation. But he also made news when it comes to Ukraine, saying that he predicts a Russian invasion. The president says that if that happens, Putin will be held accountable. Now, in response, the Kremlin says U.S. sanctions will not, our U.S. sanction threats will not help reduce tensions there. The Kremlin also says that it does not rule out conversations between President Biden and Putin. Brian. NBC's Bree Jackson in D.C. Bree, thank you very much. We'll get much more on that in a moment. Well, inflation and Russia may be the two most important things to the markets and your money right now. Higher interest rates, of course, are getting most of the blame for falling stock prices that this year. But is that really it? Or could it be something else having to do with the Federal Reserve and its soon-to-be-declining balance sheets? Well, look at this chart from Deutsche Bank. It shows the surge in the big tech stocks, and that is the FANG names, alongside the growth of the balance sheet of five different central banks around the world. Can't tell the difference? That's the point. Because as banks have built up their balance sheet, stocks have soared almost exactly in line with it. So what happens when and if this reverses? Former Goldman Sachs Asset Management Chairman Jim O'Neill is with us once again, and it's a real pleasure and important time to have him on. Uh, Jim, good to chat with you again. Uh, I showed that chart knowing that a lot of viewers at this hour in America were going to look at it and go, what am I looking at? The two lines look exactly the same. That's kind of the point we were trying to make. How much have, not rates, but balance sheet expansions meant for the growth and money-making of a lot of big tech names in your mind? Oh, gosh. I I put that in there with the hundreds of other things that I feel quite uncertain about uh, for the future. But what what is for sure is uh, disciples of Milton Friedman have been having a field day the past uh, six to nine months because that that enormous growth in the red line has led to, or certainly contributed, a very significant rise in, in things that you used to talk about in the early days of my career, 30 years plus back, uh, money supply. Uh, because in many parts of the developed world, uh, monetary growth has been rising sharply. And historically, fast monetary growth has led to all sorts of things, faster than trend rate of economic growth, faster inflation, uh, and for a period... Uh, rising stock markets. So it, it, it is pretty consistent with what's happened. That, that's for sure. 
And you note it in uh, your latest piece that you put out. You talk about monetary policy. You talk about flattening yep. yield curves as well. We have seen, I, I mean, I know this is going to sound weird to a lot of our viewers that are maybe new to the financial markets. The move in the bond market in just three weeks has been pretty spectacular by bond market standards. And I don't use spectacular yep. necessarily in, <laughs> in a good way. What do you make of this sort of ultra-tightening in just three weeks, Jim. So uh, again, and, and unless uh, your viewers and participants uh, of a similar uh, vintage, let's call it, to myself, and we're around in 1993, mm. 94, uh, they won't have been uh, particularly familiar with something like the past three weeks. But uh, that period was was literally uh, of the past 35 years the only severe uh, sustained multi-week move in bond markets that has existed in a negative sense. Uh, and we've had three weeks of a version of the same. And uh, if this were to go on, uh, to repeat exactly 1994, then we would have a, a bit of a horror show coming in the, in the financial markets, and especially given the very high levels of valuations that the equity market started off. I mean, in many ways, it's as I wrote in that piece at Project Syndicate a couple of weeks back, it's almost classic uh, circumstances of people that came, like myself, out of that era. Uh, and it's partly because the markets mm. aren't really unsure of what the Fed's real mission on inflation is. And, of course, as you're focusing on throughout the show, almost daily, I'm sure, the past few days, quite how far the Fed going to go. And your, your uh, colleague didn't touch on this part of Biden's comments yesterday, but for, to my eyes and ears, he gave a not-so-subtle nudge to get a move on and raise rates uh, to the Fed, which is, of course, yep. in many ways, quite remarkable coming from a Democratic president. But, you know, the, the issue all over the Western world is trying to get inflation under control, and, and so there's not this huge threat to real income growth as well. So it's all quite concerning. I would like to say the great minds think alike, Jim, but yours is far greater than mine. But actually, yesterday, last night, I tweeted out that maybe one of the greater market risks that nobody paid attention to in that conference was exactly that, that he basically deferred to the Fed. He said, well, fighting inflation is the Fed's job. And I wondered, I said, wow, my eyes kind of popped. And I thought he just gave Jay Powell and the Fed the political open door to sort of do yeah. whatever it wants on inflation. Yeah. Did he not? I think he did. That's how I read it. And uh, we're seeing the same thing here in the UK. The, 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 the British uh, finance minister, or the chancellor as we call it, has been uh, you know, getting onto the media because we had very high inflation figures reported here again. Uh, and he essentially gave cover to the Bank of England to raise rates. Uh, and of course, at a time where there is fiscal tightening going on at the margin after the it admittedly mammoth stimulus of the past two years. Uh, this is possibly why yield curves are starting to flatten a bit and equity markets are showing some concern because tightening monetary and fiscal conditions at the same time uh, aren't usually known as being particularly good recipes for sustained economic growth. So there's lots of uh, tricky things here that the markets are having to deal with. 
And the rate hike forecasts are all over the map from a couple, two or three to I think somebody from J.P. Morgan had eight or nine mentioned the other day. Let me go back to a previous thing you said earlier, Jim, which was horror show, which, of course, makes me think of a clockwork orange. But you said it's going to be a horror show for certain parts of the equity market. And I think it already has in many ways, especially with money losing companies, stocks trading at 100 times projected because they have no earnings, projected results or whatever metric you may want to use. Is there any reason to own those companies now? Because in 1995, and I'm getting up there too, my friend, 1995, the Dow rose 33%, even after a bunch of rate hikes, but high multiple companies got hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think in that sense, uh, as I'm sure there is evidence of it, for true uh, equity sector pickers and specific uh, stock players, you know, this this is one of the most uh, interesting uh, times and, and actual opportunities, I would guess, that we've seen for quite a long time. And and for and for real uh, um, experienced market players, th- this should be a great opportunity to sh- to prove that you can give alpha, uh, because we've had for. You know, most of the years of the past 12 years, essentially highly correlated markets that have indeed all been down to extreme monetary and fiscal generosity. Uh, And if we're now starting to come out of this pandemic into an endemic stage, which is increasingly the mood over here in Europe, by the way, and we're going to see more more natural economic growth recovering as well, you know, the policymakers do not need to continue with the emergency-type uh, policy support, even if inflation stabilizes. You know, we need, to, we need at one point to get back to a world where there's a positive real interest rate. And uh, that will mean some of these enormous gains that we've seen in certain parts of financial assets, perhaps including things like crypto, uh, certainly blockchain and some of these others, uh, um, are, are going to have further corrections because a lot of them are just based on huge amounts of monetary growth. Uh, and and the, the key for real stock players is to note the difference between those with a sustainable business plan and those that don't. I think if I'm uh, paraphrasing you correctly, Jim, it has been very easy to look like a very good investor in the last few years, courtesy <laughs> of central banks. It's going to get a lot harder going forward. Jim O'Neill, we always love your perspective, your vintage, as you would call it, Jim. Thank you so much, my friend. That's a polite way for being old. I'm right there with you, my friend. I am right there with you. Look, it's been really easy to make money the last 10 so years. It's going to get a lot harder. Jim O'Neill, thank you very much. All right. There is so much more to do on this Thursday morning, and when we come back, A deeper dive into President Biden's comments on Russia, Ukraine, and Vladimir Putin. Lee McCroft is here to weigh in on what happens to oil and gas if Putin starts a war. Then, laying out the bull case for the fuel of electric cars, lithium, and why prices may be going up, up, up. Futures are up. We're glad you're up. And we're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. 
Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. Well, there's so much talk about the price of oil and gasoline lately that it might be easy to forget about the, quote, gasoline of electric cars, and that is lithium. And lately, lithium prices are surging. Last year in China, prices more than doubled. Demand for EV batteries is soaring, and it's not getting any better. Rystad Energy says lithium demand should outpace supply at least for a few more years. So let's talk about what this all might mean with Susan Zhu, Senior Analyst for Energy Metals with Rystad. Susan, thank you for joining us here on CNBC. We appreciate it. I read your latest note with great interest because lithium is going to be kind of the fuel of the future. Where do we stand right now with supply and with demand? Yeah, sure. And actually, last year we have a that we have seen quite aggressive lithium price high. Um, and in China, the spot average lithium prices rose over 100% in 2021 from 2020. And also lithium prices uh, in Seabon Asian market also, also rose about 50% uh, last year. And the price hike was mainly due to the tremendous demand from the battery sector, especially from the EV sector. Uh, but such Growing demand is challenged by, uh, with some kind of supply bottleneck in the upstream sector, which is mainly due to the price decline in back in 2018 and 2019. Those price downturn has idled quite a few upstream projects and also discouraged many investment appetite in this field. Uh, so that's why we see the price rise. But from last year, we have seen some upstream projects have responded to the growing demand and prices, but that was still quite slow. So um, in 2022, RiceDot still estimate uh, the price momentum may persist throughout 2022, and uh, but that was in a less aggressive way compared to last year. And we think uh, by the end of this year, the leasing prices in Seabon mm-hmm. Asian market is likely to rise by by 50% compared to the beginning of this year. Susan, there are so many very bullish projections about electric vehicle sales around the world. You're in Shanghai right now. You are ostensibly the electric car capital of the world. Is there going to be enough lithium in the next five or 10 years to build all the batteries to make all these cars? Yes. Um, so the, as far as the demand is there, as I said, the supply side will respond to this rising demand. However, there will always be a time when the rising demand can outpace uh, that supply. Uh, right start saying uh, from 2025, and we will project that scenario. So the demand from the 
a demand of lithium from the battery sector will outpace the lithium supply, and that will last for a couple of years until we see kind of meaningful supply from recycled lithium, for example. And uh, Rystad also think like in 2025, the year-on-year growth of battery demand will hit around 31%. That is quite aggressive number. 31% big numbers. And by the way, the price of lithium in China more than double from 2020 to 2021. Uh, the race for the assets to control the future. Susan Zhu of Rystad Energy in Shanghai. Uh, we appreciate it. Good evening, I will say to you, Susan. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Still on deck. You're welcome. All right. Why Jeffrey says the bar could not be lower for Netflix as they get set to roll out their results. Stock futures are higher. Grab another cup of coffee. We're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Good morning and welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Philip Mena. Here are some of the big headlines this morning. A major break for the lawmakers investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The Supreme Court dealing a blow to former President Trump by refusing to block the National Archives from handing over a trove of records from the days leading up to the riot. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren says some documents have already been released. Mr. Trump filed a lawsuit back in October, arguing that the materials should be shielded by executive privilege, but two lower courts ruled against him. The Supreme Court is allowing the records to be handed over while Mr. Trump's appeal is under review. Only Justice Clarence Thomas said the documents should be blocked in the meantime. The CIA has concluded the so-called Havana syndrome is not the result of any sustained campaign by a hostile power. Hundreds of U.S. diplomats and spies worldwide have reported symptoms of brain injuries, first in 2016 at the U.S. Embassy in Cuba. Russia was long suspected of using microwave energy on U.S. officials, but they always denied that claim. Six sources briefed on the matter tell NBC News that while foreign involvement cannot be ruled out in about two dozen cases, the CIA has found plausible alternate explanations for the majority of cases. Those suffering from Havana syndrome say they are very disappointed with the findings. Finally, a rare 555.55 carat black diamond has been listed for auction by Sotheby's. The diamond, named the Enigma, is expected to sell for more than $6 million. Black diamonds are unique in that they're created from an asteroid that collided with the Earth or from a meteoric impact. Uh, Sotheby's is accepting cryptocurrency as part of this bidding process for this Guinness record-worthy gem. The auction, if you're interested, ends on February 9th. We'll be right back.
Will it be a Thursday turnaround, the drubbing of big tech as the Nasdaq down more than 10% this year, but futures right now, they're higher. Looming large, the threat of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. President Biden warning Putin threatening sanctions if he goes in. Lee McCroft is here with why oil could go to 100 bucks or more if he does. And Congress's potential crackdown on big tech, facing its biggest test yet. Lawmakers look to put pen to paper on a potential bill. It's Thursday, January 20th. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome or welcome back and good Thursday morning, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us. Let's kick off this half hour with U.S. stock futures because, of course, they are now higher across the board. Maybe a little good news, some green on your screen. The Nasdaq just up over one half of one percent this morning, the strongest of the three major averages. Now, the possible turnaround today, slight as it may be, coming after big tech took another big hit yesterday. The Nasdaq Composite and the Nasdaq 100 both falling again. And both indexes with that drop are now down more than 10% from their recent highs. So at least from a technical perspective, they are both in a correction. A lot of that has to do with the rise in rates and bond yields. The two in the 10-year hovering at January 2020 highs. Now this morning, they're holding steady. We're not seeing really any move in yields. We'll see if that changes through the day. Now to energy. And in a rare press conference yesterday, President Biden being asked about the price of oil, saying his administration will work to find ways to increase supplies as prices continue to climb. We're going to dive further into that in a moment with uh, RBC's Halima Croft. It has also been a weak start to the year for many of the cryptos, at least the big ones like Bitcoin. Now, right now, the major cryptos, they are slightly higher. Bitcoin at 42,000 and change. But remember, Bitcoin was above 60,000 just a couple of weeks ago. All right, let's turn now back to energy, not the drilling for it, but the distribution of it. Let's talk utilities coming off a strong 2021 with maybe some potential more room to run as investors move out of less risky assets and into the uh, traditionally safer and more boring sector. The never boring Dom Chu is here with more as part of our Sectornomics series. Good morning, Dom. Hey, good morning, Brian. So utilities, yes, they were positive, as was every sector in the S&P 500 over the last 12 months. But energy has been the best performer, no doubt about it, because people have been playing for the economic recovery. Plus, energy was so depressed back at the depths of the pandemic. If you take a look, though, at energy versus the S&P 500 and the utilities in the lens of ETFs, you can see even though with the gains and the strength in utilities, it still was the worst performing sector in the S&P 500 over the past 12 months, as a lot of investors focused on that so-called value cyclical economic reopening trade. If you look within that utility sector, though, there have been some massive standouts. Of the 28 members there, over half of them have gained a lot over the course of the past year. You can see from utilities overall, First Energy was up 34 percent. Exelon was up 33 percent. And Centerpoint Energy, to your point, Brian, was up 27 percent. Many others up double digit percentages as well. Now, the reason why you say, though, how could the whole sector be only up 10 percent when many of these stocks are up double digits? Well, here's the reason why. It's NextEra Energy. And the reason why we want to focus on the company formerly known as Florida Power and Light, FPNL, the largest utility in the world. If you take a look at the performance over the last year, it's down one and a half percent. The reason why it's key 
is that this is the single biggest market cap stock within the entire index of utilities in that sector overall by a wide margin. Brian, just to give you that context, NextEra is between 16 and 17 percent weighted in the overall index. The next biggest one is Duke Energy at around 8 percent. Brian, watch NextEra. Back over to you. It is a giant renewables company, the old Florida power and light. Dom Chu, thank you very much, my friend. All right, let's get back now to the broader markets. Technology in one of this morning's top stories, the NASDAQ, of course, falling again on Wednesday. Now, that drop puts it technically in correction, which means it is off more than 10% from its most recent high that was set back in November. The index already down nearly 4% in just the past two days and is on pace for its fourth losing week in a row. Now, according to Bespoke Investment Group, through 12 days of trading, it is off to its fourth worst start to a year in history. In 2008, lost 11.5%. 2016, nearly 11%. 2009, 8.5%. 2022, there we go. This year, down 8%. And then 1996, it was down 5%. And this could be an RBI from our colleague and friend, Peter Schacknow, who notes this. Thank you, Peter, if you're listening. The Nasdaq's January loss, so far, of course, is larger than the loss it has posted for any full year since back in 2008 when it lost 40.5%. We're not comparing this year to 2008, I hope, but the NASDAQ has lost more in 12 days than in any year going back, what is that? Carry the one, 14 years. Checking the names that dominate tech in the market that are most in correction with some knocking on the door of a Technical bear market, although I know that's a process. Don't at me. Amazon down 17% from its most recent high. Facebook's Meta down 16%. Microsoft up 13% and on pace for its worst month in more than five years. Google down 10% and Apple down 9% as well. Now, not to be outdone, the N in Fang, Netflix, even worse, off more than 26% from its most recent high. Zip preps to kick off big earnings after the close today, or should I say results, because there may not be a lot of earnings in those results. Joining us now is Jared Weisfeld, Managing Director and U.S. Tech Sector Specialist at Jefferies. Jared, good morning. We like to say earnings, but if the company loses money, they're not earnings, they're losses. What are you expecting from Netflix? Yeah, good morning, Brian. Thanks for having me again. It's going to be an interesting one tonight. And, you know, sentiment has deteriorated significantly with shares down almost $200 from the Squid Game euphoria, which seems like an eternity ago. Um, You know, not only given the broader NASDAQ market weakness that you're talking about, but investors are increasingly worried about a subscriber miss here and a guide down uh, tonight. So it's going to be an interesting setup. I think folks are generally looking for about 13 million cumulative paid net ads across December and March versus consensus at about 14 and a half million. So expectations are certainly coming down, which, which is obviously a positive setup for, for the stock. And, and all eyes are certainly going to be on the price increase, which uh, they just put forth in North America and, the, and uh, North America last week uh, by about 11%. Was that a good thing in kind of a weird way, Jared? I mean, I loved it. You know, if you, you, you expect your kid to get a C minus on a test, they come in with a C plus and you're actually sort of happy about it. Yeah, no, it's um, so um, so we have expectations that are coming lower and then we've got this price increase that's going through. So I think there are there are two things to think about. Uh, There's one thing where you they're delivering so much more value uh, than they have in the past. Right. If you if you take a look at this is the first price increase going back 
since 2020, it's the sixth price increase since 2014, right? So they're delivering more value. They're giving us an incredible slate. You look at the slate that's coming out or that just came out in the December quarter. It's the most robust that it's ever been. Uh, and you've got upcoming Stranger Things and multiple more launches. On the other hand, you want to certainly think about just the potential churn and the fact that it's such a competitive landscape across broader OTT offerings. I'm sure you see it in your house, across Disney, across Hulu. So when you think about just you know, how much they need to spend for all of this content combined with the competitive yeah. landscape. It, it's certainly, uh, you know, a, a good two-way argument. And Netflix has some amazing content, but none of what you're saying should be new to our viewers. I mean, I know you and others have talked about this for years, Jared. Okay, we've got Peacock, ours. We've got Hulu. We've got a thousand different apps or channels, whatever you want to call them, whenever you plug in your Apple TV or your Roku, they're all there. They're all competing for the best content, for the best talent. Why now suddenly is this, well, they may be spending too much on content theme coming home to roost. They've been spending too much on content for years. They've never, they've never had a dime of earnings, have they? No, no, and I, and I think that's fair, but it's now coming to the point where we really haven't been having to deal with this concept of missing paid net ads in the context of a content inflection that is so significant. So when you start seeing, you know, they've gotten the pass over the years because everyone's been focused on the growth of the company and everyone's been focused on the beats and raises on paid net ads. But when you have the combination of disappointing paid net ads, you know, the the, the, the concept of saturation starts to take over. And that, that's certainly not a narrative that, that you want for a growth company. Uh, on the other hand, let's also be balanced. The stock is now approaching 20 times next year EBITDA. So valuation is certainly becoming much more palatable. And you know Netflix historically really has never had that valuation backdrop. So you're certainly getting compensated from a valuation perspective, uh, whereas you have not in the past. Will they, will, will, they have, will they make money this quarter or last quarter, I should say, Jared? I think all eyes are on 2022. Um, so they're actually about to inflect here pretty significantly, Brian. Um, they're going to be about break even for calendar 21 from a free cash flow perspective. Consensus is sitting at about a billion and a half for free cash flow next year. And folks certainly think that's, uh, that, that's doable. So, you know, that, that's when you get into that, uh, that trade off where perhaps growth is slowing, but free cash flow is set to inflect. Hey, break even is the new making a lot of money. Jared Weisfeld, we really appreciate your views on Netflix. I know those numbers will be widely watched tonight. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Now let's switch gears. Oh, you're very welcome. Now let's switch gears and go to President Biden's press conference on Wednesday, now tackling a lot of issues in the nearly two hours that he spoke in his first year in office, most notably warning Vladimir Putin on new sanctions on expectations that the Russian president will invade Ukraine. Biden also pledging to keep pressure for lower oil prices as crude racing toward $90. Listen. So this is not all just a cakewalk for Russia. Militarily, they have overwhelming superiority in, on, on, as, as it relates to Ukraine. But they'll pay a stiff price immediately, near term, medium term, and long term if they do it. There's going to be... Uh, there's going to be a reckoning along the line here as to whether or not we're going to continue to see oil prices continue to go up in ways that are going up now relative to what is going to what impact that's going to have on the producers. And so um, it's going to be hard. I think that's the place where most middle class people, work class people get hit the most. We're going to continue to work on trying to increase oil supplies. 
that are available. All right, let's now bring in Halima Croft, RBC Capital Markets, global head, of course, of commodity strategy, maybe the person in the world to listen to on this topic right now. Halima, you and I were literally going back and forth at, what, 1030 last night uh, talking about this. Is the base case that Vladimir Putin will go into Ukraine? I mean, I think it's increasingly becoming the base case in Western capitals that Russia will send those troops across the border and potentially try to take Kiev. Now, the interesting debate is, what if he stops short of a full-blown invasion? He just solidifies control over the east if he just does more cyber attacks. But there is a, certainly an expectation that there is going to be increased Russian hostilities. And people believe that he really is looking to reconstitute his empire. So I think this is the most important story for all market watchers to be paying very close attention to. What happens if they do, if, if Vladimir Putin decides to go into Ukraine, by the way, he, he went in in 2014. I was in Russia right. when he annexed part of Crimea. This would be much bigger than that. Uh, what happens if he does? What, what do we do? What happens to energy prices? I mean, we've said we are not going to be sending troops to help Ukraine. It is not a NATO country. The question is, will we provide some other support to Ukrainian forces? But the expectation is Russia has overwhelming military power. If they want to take Kiev, it could be a horrible couple of weeks, but they could take Kiev. The question is, what type of economic price will they pay for it? Now, the Biden administration talks about crippling sanctions they will impose on Russia, very stringent financial sanctions. So look for Russia potentially being kicked out of the SWIFT payment system, you know, targeting the ruble. But they have said also they're not going to sanction energy because they want to keep the flow of energy, particularly into Europe. But the question is, does Vladimir Putin respond precisely by hitting the West where it hurts, by cutting off the supplies of gas into Europe, by curtailing Russian oil exports, using its power in OPEC to try to get the producer group to withhold supplies. So this is going to be a very big challenge to the Biden administration. They do not want a $100 barrel oil, but a Russian invasion of Ukraine is clearly the path to $100 oil. The president sort of alluded to that yesterday in saying this, and I thought he made a good point, Halima, which is he said that that uh, petrochemicals, gas, oil were almost half of Russia's budget. In other words, they can use energy as a weapon of sorts for so long, but they need the money too badly to prolong any kind of energy standoff. Does that make sense? I mean, the Russians have built up their sovereign wealth fund. And so the question is, does Russia have the financial bandwidth by withholding supplies of gas into Europe? Can they essentially see who blinks first? And certainly Europe has already been having issues with rising utility prices, rising gas prices. If Russia were to cut off supplies into Europe, what would that do to the will of Europeans to see through sanctions on Russia. So I think we are headed for a game of chicken in energy markets, but I think the Russians believe that they can go to our point of pain and maybe we will just have to accept the facts on the ground. It's gotten so bad in, in Turkey, they're actually rationing natural gas now. And to your point, people are using electricity at night in Europe because it's too expensive to use during the day. Alima Croft of RBC, Incredibly important point of view, and by the way, the one to listen to on this topic. Lima, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. All right, coming up, 
Big tech in Congress's crosshairs today. Lawmakers preparing to begin work on a bill taking the power of that sector maybe down a notch. We are live in Washington. Alon Moy is up next with a preview. But as we head to break, some of the other top headlines happening right now. United Airlines warning the recent ramp up and the COVID outbreak has hurt bookings in recent weeks and will delay its recovery. United lowering their 2022 growth forecast in their latest numbers. Here's some good news. Nearly 30 generic drug makers have signed a deal to produce low-cost versions of Merck's COVID treatment pill. The agreement will help get the drug to more than 100 middle- and low-income countries. And Amazon is opening a brick-and-mortar clothing store. The shop will be located in a suburb of Los Angeles. It will open up later this year. It will feature high-tech fitting rooms. Huh. We're back in a moment. All right, welcome back. It is 548 in the morning. Hope you're having a great start to your day. There's a live look at Capitol Hill. The sun is not up yet, but it's going to be a very busy day there for lawmakers as they finally get to work on their efforts to take on and maybe rein in big tech. The Senate Judiciary Committee is set to begin a debate on a bill that would curb the market power of some of the biggest companies in the world. Alon Moy joining us now with more on what exactly may be in the bill. Alon, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Well, there is a new push to pass the Senate's antitrust bill aimed at big tech, and it is coming from other tech. Companies like Sonos, DuckDuckGo, Basecamp, and Quora are banding together to call on lawmakers to take action. Several of them have already been fighting the industry giants on their own through lawsuits or by working with regulators. But this is the first time they've coordinated those efforts to amplify their voice on Capitol Hill. Here's Luther Lowe, head of public policy at at Yelp. You're seeing for the first time so many small startups uh, that are getting off the sidelines and speaking out because I think the environment out there has gotten so hostile. We haven't seen this type of cooperation between venture capitalists and entrepreneurs when it comes to big tech antitrust really in 24 years. Yelp CEO and other tech executives met yesterday with top White House economic advisors, and they're encouraged by the bipartisan support for the antitrust bill that the Senate Judiciary Committee will debate today. The American Innovation and Choice Online Act was introduced by Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar and Republican Chuck Grassley. It's got five Republican and five Democratic co-sponsors, including the chairman of the committee and the number two Senator Dick Durbin. Now, the goal is to prevent the dominant platforms from preferencing their own products and discriminating against their smaller rivals. Now, there is a similar bill in the House that's been stalled since last summer, but the companies are hoping that if this proposal can make it out of committee today, that'll renew the momentum in Congress to try to get something done before the midterms. Brian, back over to you. Elon, how is big tech respond? I mean, they've got some big money with big lobbying. How is big tech responding to all of this? Yeah, Brian, they hate this bill. They feel like the way that it is designed unfairly targets a handful of companies. You need a $550 billion market cap, 50 million active monthly users. You need to be a critical trading partner to businesses online. So they feel like there is a big target on their backs right now. And one of the arguments they're making is that if this bill uh, actually does pass, that it would what would make consumers uh, lose some of the most popular services that these uh, platforms offer, like an Amazon Prime with free shipping, like Google Maps. So they're fighting this tooth and nail. 
Lawn Moy, no surprise, they hate that bill. Get those lobbyists, get K Street rolling. Lawn Moy, thank you very much. Have a great day, Lawn. Take care. All right, on deck, stocks fighting to put a halt to this week's ongoing slide. Greg Sarian is here to lay out why volatility is the new normal and what you need to do to your investment portfolio right now. And by the way, right now, we're seeing a nice pop in futures. They could get a Thursday turnaround. They're higher by triple digits. We're back right after this. All right, welcome or welcome back. In his press conference yesterday, President Biden tried to address the issue of inflation. It's on everybody's mind, saying, quote, it's going to be hard for many families. He was talking about facing higher gasoline and even food costs. So is inflation going away anytime soon, or will the Fed have to raise rates a lot more aggressively than many expect, which, of course, could hit certain stock prices even more? Greg Sarian is CEO and founder of Sarian Strategic Partners at Hightower and joins us now. Greg, at the beginning of the show, I don't know if you caught it, no worries if you didn't, Jim O'Neill, formerly of Goldman Sachs, made a point, basically said this, I'll summarize, it was very easy to look very smart in the stock market the last number of years because central banks threw so much money at everything, everything went up. I suspect you're here to say, with the Fed about to raise rates potentially a lot, it is going to be a lot harder to make money in this equity market. Well, first, Brian, thanks for having me back. I did see this segment, and not only did was it easy to make money in stocks the last 10 years, but in bonds. Everything made money in a decreasing interest rate environment. And we're in a new paradigm, and I think investors need to really embrace a new reality of, number one, much more volatility in markets, like we've seen the last few weeks, and muted returns, going back to a normal return environment where stocks earn 6 7%, bonds do 3 or 4 private investments are 4 or 5 So what do we do? If one of our viewers has, you know, 90% of their money in the QQQ or some sort of FANG index, and by the way, some of them probably have, and they've looked very smart, made a lot of money, congrats to them. If you are overweight, high-growth tech, what should we do now? Yeah. So two really important things to do in that circumstance, Brian. Number one, reassess your planning assumptions. Again, if you're about to retire, saving for retirement, are retired, those 8 or 9% returns in balanced accounts, we should be focusing more like at a 4 or 5% return with the same level of risk and basing your spending and saving assumptions on those types of numbers. Secondly, embrace the volatility, right? When we have market peaks like we did in early January, that's the time to raise cash for taxes, tuition, spending money, do your charitable giving, give to family members when markets are high. When markets are low, like they are today, we've had a dip. Now's the time to add cash to equities. Now's the time to do those IRA or Roth conversions. Now's mm-hmm. the time to tax loss harvest. And then thirdly, to your point on the volati- on the equity allocation, this is not a, an environment anymore to put money in a target date fund and set it and forget it. I, we see too many investors still overweight large cap growth. And I think the trend we've seen over the last six to eight weeks of dividend, dividend growth companies outperforming pure growth companies, that trend we believe has legs. And secondly, Brian, these emerging markets, which have mm. underperformed locally less, we believe those are staged to outperform as well. Looking at value, maybe as the new growth, at least for your wealth and emerging markets. Greg Sarian of Hightower, some really, really important uh, real-world moves. Greg, we appreciate your views. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
All right, folks, that does it for us here at a very busy worldwide exchange. We will see you at the same time on Friday. A lot more to do. Squawking the gang, picking up the coverage. Futures, they're up. There you go. Glad you're up. We'll see you tomorrow. Take care. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.